This is Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. This episode is very personal to me. My guest for this show is my brother, Scott Shea. He's written an in-depth biography of the Mamas and the Papas. But don't think he's on just because he's my brother. There's no nepotism on this podcast. It's really a fascinating read. And Scott's road to getting it published is a true DIY story. The book gives the backstory to all four members of the Mamas and the Papas and how they met. And there's so much detail and stories that I've never heard. Like how much of a juvenile delinquent John Phillips really was. And just how toxic he and Michelle were together. There's the unrequited love of Cass Elliot for Denny Doherty and their band The Mugwumps claim to fame. I had no idea that when Denny joined up with John to play in the pre-Mamas and Papas band The New Journeyman, he thought it was actually taking a step backwards from the rock and roll he wanted to play. But he had bills to pay. There's also John's ridiculous reasons for not wanting Cass Elliot in the band and they may not be exactly what you think. Scott's book, All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and Papas Came Together and Broke Apart, is available through Backbeat Books. Follow Scott at Scott Shea Author on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out his website, scottsheaauthor.com. Follow the podcast at Performance ANX on Instagram and Twitter, Performance Anxiety on Facebook, and you can send us a cup of coffee through ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. And I hope you enjoy my totally impartial episode with Scott Shea, author on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, uh, my name is Scott Shea. Uh, I the the hold on a second. You can edit that part out. Hey, I'm Scott Shea. You are listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast. I didn't get on here because I am the host brother. I got on here because I wrote a book called All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart, available on Backbeat Books now. You can go there to their website, backbeatbooks.com. You can go to my website, scottsheaauthor.com. We'll give you links to where you can buy the book. You can just do a basic Amazon search or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million, wherever fine books are sold. People drink on your podcast? Yeah, yeah. All the time. I drink on my podcast. Okay. So I do want to start off the, the podcast by talking a little bit about you and what got you into this. I know you pretty well, but uh, most of the listeners don't. They may have heard about you in, in some other episodes, but uh, they... Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and your your uh, proclivity towards older music. You weren't into music of the time when we were growing up, except out of, outside of like Bruce Springsteen and a few few other contemporary bands. You had a big focus on music of 50s, 60s, 70s. Vintage. Yeah, exactly. Cla- <laughs> classic. Let's and, just say let's just say it oldies. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hate the, that word. One of the things that that <laughs> kind of struck me when you told me about this project you were doing was one trip that we took. We were kids and we went down to the Jersey Shore with our cousins and our aunt and uncle mm-hmm. and cousins. And we were all going out to dinner one night. And I think this is when I realized how deep into classic music you were we were all in one car like there's like i don't know seven of us in one car or and uh or even more than that the uh the radio was on and a mama's and the papa's song came on california dreaming right and so we're all singing it 
everybody in the car is singing the song in Calif. And then it breaks, it, it, the intro stops. It actually gets into the verse of the song and it's, you know, stopped into a church and nobody knew that part except you. You were the only <laughs> one that sang yeah. that part. And every, my, our mom, our aunt, uncle, all the kids, everybody just stopped. And it was like a record scratch. And everybody stopped and looked at you like, how do you know that song? (laughs) How do you know these lyrics? Yeah, I remember that well, too. I remember it being in Florida, but maybe it was the Jersey Shore. Maybe maybe it was Florida. Yeah, I don't remember. It it was somewhere warm and with water. Right. We were on vacation for sure. And I think uh, I think our cousins, Chris and Matt, were hitching a ride with us. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I remember. And the the reason was because mom and our parents, definitely not our father, but our mother had. (laughs) The Mamas and the Papas Greatest Hits. It was like the 16 Greatest Hits. And I used to listen to it. I, I And uh, California Dreaming was the very first song. And it's such, a, it, it's such an intoxicating song. It's just people love it. And it draws you in. And I just remember listening to it. It's like that and like Go Where You Want to Go were like my two favorites on that album. And, you know, I would hear it on the radio. Listen, we grew up in the New York area, New York City area. So we listened to a lot of CBS FM. It was the oldie station, yeah. 101.1, Cousin Brucey and all them. And um, they play that song a lot, and I loved it. And I loved it. Yeah, Monday, Monday, I was like, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's a good tune, but I really like California Dreaming. And yeah, I remember I remember sitting in that, in that car, and I was thinking, should I? Should I do it? <laughs> because I remember thinking, nobody's going to know this. Nobody's going to keep going, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, this is like my opportunity to be like Elvis, you know? Right. And I did, and I just I just remember everybody laughing, just, just yep. laughing hysterically. Thinking, oh, yeah. Just, oh, my gosh. It <laughs> you know, fun. stopped into a church. You were the only... <laughs> only one that kept going and it, it was right it was amazing i thought of that moment a lot especially when i was writing it i thought of that moment really? oh, that's <laughs> i didn't even know if you remembered that or not but that's oh, oh for sure that's one thing i've that, told rebecca i i've told my wife about it yeah <laughs> it's a highlight of your life so yeah you've written a book so before we we get too deep into uh questions and, and stories about the book let's just get into the you wrote a book and right i've got it right here I got it too. Awesome. (laughs) All the leaves are brown. All the leaves are brown. How the mamas and the papas came together and broke apart. How had this book never been written before? This, there's so much information in this. It, what what got you interested in this story in particular? Because you are a fan of a lot of different bands, a lot of different styles of music of that era. What was it about the mamas and the papas and John Phillips that really made you want to get into this? You know, I love the Mamas and the Papas. I wouldn't say like I was a Mamas and the Papas super fan, though. I mean, I, I mean, who doesn't? I've never met anybody who doesn't like the Mamas and the Papas, right? Right. Yeah. Like I, mean, I never said like I don't. I've met people who don't like the Beatles, like you. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot. I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I've encountered like Springsteen hatred. You know. Yeah. A lot, like from you, <laughs> when we were when we were younger. You're making not me so sound like now. a shithead right now. <laughs> I have a music podcast and I hate everybody. My brother, my brother-in-law, he like he like rages when a Bruce song comes on. But um, I've never heard anybody say like, "Oh, I hate the mamas and the papas," you know. Right. So the way it came about was, you know, I had done a series of documentaries for the Catholic Channel. Program director at the time, Liz Aiello, had asked me. She 
you know, she was only a program director for about a year or so. She was a program director when we when the Pope came to America, which was a big deal. The Sirius XM got really behind it. Yeah. And they they put it gave us a big budget and they brought people in and and one of the things Liz wanted to do was she wanted original programming leading into it. So she asked she we I had Put together a, when when the Pope went to Israel, I had put together a, just a tiny little thing for her because I had she knew I had I told her I had some records of the of Pope John uh, Paul the Sixth his trip to Israel in like 1965, and she was like, "Oh, can you copy that and we'll air that, you know?" And you see if we can get permission. And it was like like so in the public domain, we didn't even need to get permission. Right. So, so she saw knew my ability to tell a story, and she saw my love for history, and she asked me to write a documentary or produce a documentary for Pope Francis about his life story coming to America. So, you know, that that went over really well. Uh, It was submitted for some awards, didn't win any, but so they they kept going. They asked me to do one on Mother Teresa when she was being canonized. And then for Pope Benedict XVI, I forget, I think because I don't even remember why we did it for him. But then we did one for... um, the Catholic Channel, because uh, we were celebrating our 10th anniversary, she, they wanted uh, an, a documentary on the history of the channel. So I put that okay. one together. So, you know, I was like, you know, this is fun, but it's not very lucrative doing it for free <laughs> for the Catholic <laughs> Channel. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, and like music is, you know, my faith is very passionate, but I'm also very passionate about music. And as like, I was, I was like, I'd like to write a book. You know, I really enjoyed researching and talking to people. I, I wanted to write a book and I didn't know this, but I didn't know I have a subject in mind. Okay. And I had just read, I was kind of in a folk rock idiom because I was reading, I had read a book about Gene Clark of the birds. He was a founding member of the birds by John Anderson. And I had just finished reading Peter Ames Carlin's book, uh, homeward bound, uh, the life of Paul Simon, which was really good. And it was really, had a really profound effect on me. I was like, I want to write a book like this because Peter writes in narrative nonfiction and right. I enjoy that because it reads more like a novel than yeah. like, you know, a who, what, when, where, why with filled with quotes and things like that. Which is no problem with those kind of books. I just don't write in that style. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. And you know, my, I was like, well, you know, I'd like to read a book about John Phillips. Um, you know, I've, I've read about Brian Wilson, and, and John Phillips and Brian Wilson are kind of very similar in their approaches to music arranging. And, you know, Brian was influenced by the four freshmen as, as a kid. John was influenced by the high lows, same kind of group. Very folk, you know, for those of you who might not know, who those are those are kind of like white singing quartets from the 1950s, kind of like shaboom, shaboom, you know, but a little bit more deeper than that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like if you listen to the four freshmen, it sounds like you're listening to the Beach Boys. Like right, the yeah. Beach Boys just copied their harmonies so much, so closely. And, you know, I was like, I'd like to read about John Phillips. And I was like, well, let me look. So I go on Amazon. I type in the Mamas and the Papas and, and John Phillips. There's no book, like, written in this century. Uh, you know, uh, there was uh, John had John and Michelle, who, uh, you know, had a uh, acrimonious relationship after the divorce. They both put out, like, competing autobiographies in 1986. Right? right. Yeah. And then uh, there was an oral biography. Uh, which was a great source of material for me, but I'm not a big fan of oral biographies. They're kind of cut and paste jobs and they're so, they try to make them flow and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, they just source from a lot of interviews and, and things like that. Okay. And then there was a very, another, uh, you know, and I don't want to denigrate anybody's work because, you know, people put their heart and soul in, but there was another biography that came out around the same time around 2000. And it was about, you know, this, this thin, it was like a couple hundred pages long. And you see my book, my book's like 400 pages long. So yeah. I was like, you know, and I, I had been praying on it and I was like, and it's like, I kind of felt like it was God knocking me over the head. Here's your, here's your subject. Right. And I was like, I was like, wow, let's get started. <laughs> so I grabbed, I grabbed every book I could that was related to them. Not, not only just them, but anybody they had been in contact with any, I bought a book on Sunset Strip and Los Angeles scene in the mid sixties and Laurel Canyon and, and things like that. And I just went to town and uh, started contacting people that they had, that were still alive, that they had any kind of association with, you know, all of them were in folk bands before the formation of the Mamas and the Papas. The folk music movement was very big in the early 1960s. And uh, a lot of young, young, uh, you know, when rock and roll kind of went teen idol, 
you know, with uh, Bobby V and, and Ricky Nelson and Paul Anka, all of whom I love, <laughs> by the way, when the people kind of rebelled against that, the, a lot of the young people who had been entranced by Elvis when they were like 13 or 14 or Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry, they kind of went to the folk movement because it kind of had the same kind of zeitgeist, okay. you know, going on at that time. Okay. Like David Crosby and Stephen Stills and uh, and you know a lot of these guys they went and played and Rod Jim McGuinn of the Birds they they started playing folk music so I found a couple members of their band of the bands that one that John was in John Phillips he was in a group called the Journeyman and Denny Doherty was in a group called the Halifax Three I found a couple of guys that were still living still with it you oh, know there you, go. <laughs> <laughs> you know and. Uh, Got some great, you know, I really wanted to to kind of dive into that era because I feel like that that's a really, like, I'm really big on foundations and origins. I think that's with any group, that's kind of key. You know, it's, it's, you know, the Beatles, it's cool to, you know, listen to the Beatles from the beginning, but it's kind of cool to read about when they played in Hamburg and yeah. you know, when they were the Quarrymen and how they formed, you know, it's just, that's where the... To me, that's where the foundation lies. So, uh, you know, I really kind of dove really deep into the the folk movement. You know, it doesn't dominate the book, but it's a good portion of it because it's important to their story. It is. It's very important because, like like you mentioned, all all of them came from that scene. That that's where they some of them met. And how they that's yeah. I mean, yeah, that's really how all of them met. Yeah, you know, John met Michelle when he was when the journeyman went to San Francisco and played the hungry eye, that's where you yeah. know, she was living at the time. And then Denny and Cass met in Greenwich village when Denny had just moved there with his group and he wandered down to the bitter end and, and like heard Cass's voice belting out of the, uh, out of the club. You right, know, right. I mean, then John met Denny and <laughs> they met him on tour, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just really interconnected. So what was the most difficult part in putting this project together, I know, you know, you did this all on your own to start with. You didn't have a book deal or an agent or anything mm-hmm. guiding you along. You did this on your own before right. getting it published. So what, what was the hardest part about it? it was, you mentioned reaching out to people and you couldn't have somebody reach out for you and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have uh, my author is going to reach out to you. Or you, you do have experience booking people with, with your day job, mm-hmm. but... Were people open to talking about this kind of a thing? Yeah, pretty much. I was surprised, you know, and most of the people I reached out to got back to me. You know, I was able to find emails. Dick Wiseman uh, still, he's very, you know, he's one of John's former bandmate in The Journeyman. He's still very active. He's a, he's a teacher. He teaches, I, I think he's retired now, but he's written a lot over the course after his music career kind of ended in the late sixties, you know, he uh, went into teaching and um, is still very involved in the folk music scene in Colorado. Oh, and he wow. writes for, for various publications up there. And Pat LaCroix, who was Denny's bandmate in the Halifax Three, he's a he's a, like a world-renowned photographer uh, living in Nova Scotia. And he had a, a, web, a website with an email, and I found that. And Jill Gibson, who, re, who replaced uh, Michelle Phillips for a short time after, you know, uh, John found out that Michelle was cheating on him again, again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> with uh, Gene Clark. He kicked her out of the band and replaced her with Jill Gibson, who was uh, she she was Jan Barry's ex-girlfriend. Uh, but Jane she Jane. had written. 
of Jan and Dean. Yeah. She had co-written a lot of songs with him and she, she could sing a little and she, yeah, she wrote a lot of songs with some other people like Don Altfeld. And she was dating Lou Adler at the time, who was um, the Mamas and the Papas producer, the owner of Dunhill records, one of the owners anyway. And, um, you know, she was kind of a natural replacement. She was, a you know, a former model like Michelle was blonde, tall, very pretty. And she replaced, she only lasted like two months because, you know, John and Michelle reconciled again. (laughs) (laughs) And and she was kind of shown the door, which I think she was just kind of happy to leave. But she had, uh, she's, uh, she's like an artist and she had a webpage and I was able to find and track her down. And I was able to get in touch with Steve Barry and, you know, Barry McGuire, you know, uh, some, some were able to help me with the book. Some weren't, it was just like a pleasant conversation. That was, I wouldn't say that was the hardest part. You know, that was actually all came very easy. And like you said, I am a producer for Sirius XM. So reaching out to people, I'm not afraid to do it. I think the far, the hardest part for me was finishing it. Oh, like okay. I got, I got, you know, it took me about maybe a little less than two years to write it. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. Cause I wanted it. To, I it started out as a John Phillips biography. Yeah. I was going to write John's story. And, uh, there's a lot of touchy subjects in there for sure. And I was like, yeah, as I started to write it, it's just the story of the mamas and the papas just took over and which I took dominated my writing. I couldn't downplay it. Like if, if I had to write about, you know, you have word limits when you, when you sign a a publishing deal and I didn't have one when I was writing it, you know, when I was, I wrote 95% of it and then I had a publishing deal, but I was like, this is, you know, this thing's going to be 800 pages long. If I, if I (laughs) have this and then John's life and who wants to read, an 800 page book on John Phillips, you right. know, no offense. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's, there's probably people out there and he's an interesting guy, but I just don't know that he's that has that kind of draw. Um, so I, you know, I had put it down, um, the end of 2019, uh, I had, I, by end was the end of the, the mamas and the papas 68. They break up, you know, it's kind of a soft breakup. It's not like finalized, like, like we're done. It's, they just kind of stopped. Right. Right. And so I kind of ended it there and then COVID came. Right. So, and that, that kind of put everything on standstill for everybody, you know, and every, any, anybody doing anything. So, (laughs) so it's like, so I didn't think about it for a while. Then maybe like a year later, I started talking to people that I work with. I work with a lot of writers, you know, or, I work with one, the one particular writer, Catherine Jean Lopez, she writes for national review. And I had, I was talking to her about it and, uh, you know, she's like, Oh, do you want me to hook you up with some people that, that, that I know that can get you, you know, get you to some publishing companies. I was like, I was like, well, at first I want you to read a couple chapters and then and tell me if it's, if it's good or not. Cause you know, people tell me it's good, but like, I don't know if they're, I always think people are just telling me it's, it's, Good because they just they don't want to hurt my feelings. Yeah, you know? I, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so so I was like, okay, so you know, Catherine doesn't have so she got it into the hands of a guy, a Loyola Press named Gary Jansen, and he flipped over it. He wanted to publish it for Loyola Press, but the problem is they're a religi- religious arm and yeah. they were the religious publication, they were uh, launching a uh, a secular arm, but um I think it was still a little too, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, for a bunch of Jesuits. So I was yeah. like, so he was able to get it to John, uh, John Cerullo over at uh, Backbeat Books, which that's their specialty is music biographies. And he loved it. And uh, I guess 
February 2022, I think we got the deal and I finished it. Uh, you know, I, we decided like, let's just make it about the mamas and the papas. It'll be a mamas and the papas biography. And I just, you know, I wrapped up the final chapter and I did an epilogue because they did reunite in 1971. They were forced to read, you know, by the record label to cut, uh, to honor their contract and cut a final album. Yeah. And so I, 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 that was the final chapter. And then I wrote an epilogue. There's a lot of details in this book. A lot of stuff that not being a, I don't know what the correct term is, mama and papa head. I don't know, that doesn't sound right. Bile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, obviously a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Like, I honestly, I didn't know how much of a uh, delinquent John Phillips was as a kid. I mean, is this any surprise? No, it, it didn't surprise me, but it was, it, it wasn't something that I figured was ever down in print somewhere, something that was traceable, you know, like, yeah, you know, and, and part of it being things as he chose to do part of it, his parents were just insane. I mean, like his mom with her infidelity, discovering that his father possibly wasn't his real father. And it's just, yeah, you know, it's just an insane story. And, and it actually kind of makes me have a little sympathy for him a little later on. Cause yeah, go through that kind of stuff as a teenager, you know, he's just, what do you do with that kind of information? You know, you rebel. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was real topsy turvy. I mean, your parents are supposed to be your, your kind of your cornerstone, you know? And I think for, yeah, for a while his mom was, but his father was kind of a functioning alcoholic, yeah. you know? And then, uh, he kind of, he was a lifelong Marine and he got uh, forced out because of his health and he just spiraled into becoming a dysfunctional alcoholic. Yeah. And, um, you know, it took a toll. John really had no relationship with, with his father and it really affected his marriage to, you know, his wife, Edna. And, um, you know, she started lashing out by having affairs. And then she told John one night that, you know, your father's not really your father. It's this guy that I met when we were stationed in South, in, you know, South Carolina. Yeah. And it's funny because when you look at pictures of John and his dad, he's like, well, I don't know. He doesn't really look like him. <laughs> you know? But, but you know, I've seen like, I, you know, I've seen people my, like my dad, he doesn't look like any of his siblings, you know? No. So it's like, you know, so, and, and none of them look like each other, you know, really. I mean, there's a slight resemblance. So I've seen it. One uncle in particular. Uh, <laughs> yeah right yeah so it's it's just kind of funny and to me be quite honest with you i think she was just kind of blowing smoke that's my uh theory on that but um you know because he had two older siblings that were much older than he was um he was kind of an oops baby and um yeah so so he went but he was very he wasn't close to his brother at all but he was close with his sister and uh, in fact, he got into music through her husband. He taught him how to play a few chords on the guitar, and then he just went wild. She told him that, you know, she's heard that story before. She would tell him, she would tell her whenever she was drinking too much that, uh, you know, oh, yeah, I, I'm the daughter of a rodeo cowboy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's like kind of you have to take it with a grain of salt. But it was, you know, they sent him off to military school because he was such a bad student. He's very intelligent, super huge IQ, you know, like probably Mensa level, yeah. which is probably why he was so talented when he put his, when he found his, something to focus on in music. But uh, as a student, he was just like a total delinquent, just <laughs> instantly bored the second he sat down in a, in a classroom and uh, lashed out a lot. Out of the four members of the band, he seemed like the most 
troubled. He had the most troubled childhood. So I can definitely understand wanting to focus more on him because not only was he the arranger for the Mamas and the Papas, but and and you know wrote the music and and mm-hmm. his story is just it's so compelling. Yeah, it is. And so he ended. He got joined the Navy, got married, had kids, ended up in Cuba, was a graveyard <laughs> plot salesman, peanut vendor, and a trampoline instructor. Yeah, right. Trampoline. I want that job. <laughs> I want to be a trampoline instructor. Yeah. So yeah, that's funny. It's just um, it's it's a really amazing story, and so he's he's in the journeyman. Before he's in the journeyman, he's he's in the band with the possibly the worst name I've ever heard with the smoothies. Yeah. What? Well, that was a just real quick. I mean, that was a group from the 30s and the 40s that uh, this guy Charlie Ryan wanted to re uh, reignite. I guess is the, is the word he wanted to re- reform them. And you know, it's not it's it's been done. Like the Ink Spots were a popular black group in the 30s and 40s, and there's there's so many different like the modern Ink Spots, and you know, right. It was kind of a trendy thing to do in these vocal groups in the 50s. So he he liked uh, this group that he had called the Abstracts, and then he transformed them into the Smoothies, and they got his first recording deal. That's still it's, it's, it is a terrible name though. You're an old <laughs> smoothie. That was their big hit. Ah, uh, okay, all right. So. <laughs> So he goes from the smoothies and he's married, has kids at this point, And his long suffering wife is just dealing with his just mania at this point because he's he's so into music, but he's not exactly a faithful guy. No, in fact, not at all. He's, he's quite the opposite. So She's such a tragic figure. She is. And it's just and it makes me I don't know. I'm, I'm a curious isn't the right word. I'm, I'm I guess I'm more sympathetic to her and, and the plight, uh, the plight of her and the kids at this point. Yeah, she just wanted him. She loved him, yeah. and she wanted him to be there and be a husband and be a normal husband. Yeah, and he would, but he would go off when he joined um, uh, the journeyman. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he. It seemed like at that point maybe things were going to be settling down because he, the the journeyman started making some money. She yeah. followed him out to the West Coast, and you know, I mean, it was. It sounded like he was trying. To make it work, at least for a little while, until he met Michelle Phillips or Michelle Gilliam. Yeah. Michelle Gilliam, yeah, seventeen-year-old so, Michelle Gilliam. Yeah, and <laughs> it seems like the two of them—they were just poison for each other. I mean, yeah, it was really so toxic. It, it was. It was the thing that I wrote down was that, and we haven't even gotten to Mamas and Papas yet, but the Mamas and the Papas in general were Fleetwood Mac before Fleetwood Mac got Buckingham nixed. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. But the journey, okay, so the journeymen were were doing ad spots for Canada Dry, which I think, if I remember right, in in the book, you're saying that none of this really sat well with Dick Wiseman. He was more of a folk purist. He really was. And I did see something that I thought was really interesting. There's a performance of the journeyman doing a song called black girl, which right now tons of other bands have done it, but it's all called, where did you sleep last night? Or in the pines. Yeah. A lot of people call it in the pines. Yeah. But that I was listening to that and the harmonies, I mean, that's John's talent for arranging and, and harmonizing and arranging harmonies is evident way back then. It's just, it's yeah. amazing. 
at that point but it's it's very evident yeah it is and it's beautiful i mean i recommend anybody go check that out that song the, the harmonies are beautiful he had a guy named scott mckenzie with him at that time he was in the smoothies too and you might your uh listeners or viewers might remember scott mckenzie is the the big hit song san francisco be sure to wear flowers in your hair which john wrote yep and they were friends. I guess John was in his when, when John was first married. They're both from the same area, the Alexandria, Washington, D.C. area. And they had gotten together early on when John's marriage. He met uh, they met at a party that John is throwing. He constantly threw parties at their home, you know, when they when they were living in <laughs> Alexandria. And um, Scott had a beautiful voice like honey. You know, it was just, I mean, he was so beautiful. I, I have his, I have all his solo work. It's just, it's great stuff. And, that doesn't surprise um, me. yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't hurt when you can organize harmonies. Cause John could take, John could take you, me, and we could grab one other guy off the street and he could make us sound good. Right. That's, that was his town. He could find, you know, what talent. Are, what our heart, yeah, what our strengths were, what our weaknesses were, find the balance, you know, get hit the capitalize on the strengths and get us singing something that sounds beautiful. And it helps, it's even better when you got somebody like Scott McKenzie in the group, you know, who does, who's a naturally talented singer. Later with Cass Elliott, this one reason, like Cass Elliott, because, you know, she could, she was one of the greatest singers of that, of that whole generation. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, uh, and Dick and John were adequate singers. They they weren't great. You know, by no stretch were did they have a high range, but they could both sing. And John was able to arrange it. And yeah, you really do hear uh, see his talent on full display. You know, in that group. And what was amazing to me, which I learned from your book, was I didn't realize. So the Journeymen have a very Kingston Trio esque sound to it not just mm -hmm. uh, the harmonies but instrumentation everything and right. you know i know that was very popular at the time but i didn't realize that john phillips was in contention to take dave guard's place in the kingston trio well it's funny because that's you know they were signed by this group called the international talent agency and they got them their deal with capital records which was the same record company that the kingston trio were on and it and ita also managed the Kingston trio, but they did it through like an out, like a guy named Frank Werber, who wasn't necessarily right. an ITA management. They did it through him. They had a contract with him and uh, the founding member of the Kingston trio, Dave guard was leaving. And uh, you know, he was kind of like the John Phillips of the Kingston trio. He was their maybe their most talented musician. You know, I don't know if he, he wasn't the strongest singer, you know, Nick Reynolds and Bob Shane were better singers than he was, but he, he was like the musicologist, man. He was the one like deep into the folk and would pick a lot of their songs. Okay. And uh, so even though John and all those guys were talented and um, they, they probably would have gotten signed anyway, but they, they just really kind of took him on as an insurance policy. Like, you know, 
John's really talented. Maybe he could be a you know a replacement for Dave. But we also let's just see how this goes. You know, because maybe because Dave might leave, and maybe the Kingston Trio will implode, and then that we can we bring up the we can bring up the journeymen, and they can take their place on our roster, and we can yeah. build them. Or maybe John will join. Maybe we can throw John in there, and uh, you know he'll fill the void that Dave left. But they ultimately chose a guy named John Stewart, who was in a group another group that they managed called the Cumberland Three. And, you know, really after that, they just kind of like gave the journeyman's like short shrift, man. They were just like playing, yeah. uh, you know, they, they went from playing like the University of Wisconsin to like the University of Wisconsin, you know, Milwaukee, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, the University of Alabama, Huntsville, right. you know, <laughs> not so, even Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, yeah, Auburn. so, it, yeah, going down to all, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he was in contention, and I. He, but you know, ultimately, John was such a pain in the butt. I think that's what you know. He was always asking for money. He was starting to take uppers, uh, you know, and and smoke a lot of grass, and you know, it really kind of hampered him. Uh, you know, drugs was su- was such his undoing. You know, even back then when he managed it better. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, when he was fun- kind of functional like his dad. So it just you know, it just rubbed Frank the wrong way. You mentioned that. I didn't even think about that. You know, he he was kind of following right. a similar path of, as his dad at that point. Yeah, yeah. When he, you know, and we, I, I've worked with people like that, uh, guys that just drink yeah. all the time, and they they have their job, you know, and it just kind of makes them functional, you know, yeah. and uh, without it. You see what happens, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just so, destroy, can, can destroy you. So John and Michelle meet in a folk club while the journeymen are playing. So his relationship with Michelle really sparked the, the flame that would be the Mamas and the Papas, but it, it destroyed his marriage, but it created some of the most memorable music that they've ever created. And they've created some of yeah. the most memorable music of that era. So they moved, they ended up moving back to New York city. Right. And then a combination of drugs and a really cold February is what sparked California dreaming. Yeah. Uh, so they did move back. You know, once the whole thing with Frank Werber fell through and they left uh, ITA or they left them and went back to ITA to manage, they, you know, cause Frank Werber was based in San Francisco. So okay. that's why they moved out there. And then he moved back to uh, New York once, once that uh, ended and he got managed by a new group, just kind of be in the Greenwich village scene. You know, they only played one Greenwich village club ever. And that was their debut. They played at the uh, Gertie's folk city. Right, right. And yeah, so, but they, they like, John wanted to be where the action was. And that's really, you know, Gertie's folks, uh, Greenwich Village in the early 60s, 63, 62, 63 was kind of like San Francisco in like 67, 68, you know. And um, so it was, it was thriving. So yeah, they lived on, uh, right, they lived uh, adjacent to Washington Square Park. And I think it was at the time called the Washington Square Hotel. It's called something different now, but it's still there. And they were uh, living, you know, it was a cold uh, February night and John was, uh, you know, he was high on Benny's and he was just up all night uh, writing, writing songs. And uh, he started writing this kind of somewhat biographical song that had only taken place like that morning. Like it had, Michelle grew up in California and spent a lot of her time either there growing up or in Mexico where it was very warm. Yeah. I think she had spent a very short time in Buffalo when she was really little, but she'd never really seen snow before. So there was some snow on the ground, the light snow had fallen and uh, they took a walk and, you know, she wasn't sure how to 
dressed for cold weather since she'd never really done it, done it before. She put on like a pair of sneakers and like an, a light jacket or something. And she was, they were walking around, you know, New York, you know, Greenwich village. And, you know, I've been down, you know, I know exactly where they were and they, uh, they found, they ended up near the old St. Patrick's cathedral, uh, okay. which is right on Mott street, uh, still there. Yep. And they're like, well, let's, you know, John could tell Michelle was freezing. So they went in there just to warm up. And Michelle had the kind of a, like a love for Catholic churches, like the architecture. And since she'd seen so many in Mexico as a kid, you know, and, uh, since the, the Catholic faith is so prevalent there and you know all her friends were practicing catholics down there so um so they go into warm warm up and then um so you know then later that night they go back and john you know they, throughout this whole time they're talking about california and she how much she misses california and stuff like that so it's just sparked the thing you know all the lyrics in his head and then then he woke her up because he wanted her to, he, uh, John did it all the time. He had this like circadian rhythm where he was always kind of like pulling people in to help him out. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm writing a song. Come in, help me out with it. I'll give you half of it. That's, you know, you, you, you know, you, you hear that, you hear stories about that. So he woke, got her out of bed in the middle of the night. And she, you know, and when she kindly got out of her drowsiness, she started writing down the lyrics for him. And then she started helping him. You know, then she wrote about stopped into a church, you know, passed along the way, got down on my knees. I pretend to pray. And then, you know, and and uh, and it's funny because John, he wasn't crazy about that. He didn't wasn't crazy about that lyric. And he's like, well, we'll just put it in his placeholder. like 1963 so this is a couple of years before they even recorded it and you know he had this binder of songs because he's always going up to the brill building and up in in midtown manhattan to try to pitch songs because that's where all the songwriting companies were yeah all the publishers so he kind of stowed that one away and um you know i think he played it a couple of days later uh, judy collins had a party at her house and he, he played it and you know i think he got a smattering of applause you say yeah that's, that's nice you know it had a much different arrangement much different folkier arrangement back in those days it wasn't the the tour de force that it right. became you know yeah. the arrangement so he just stowed that one away and i think it always kind of stuck with him you know, and then uh, when they got the record deal a couple of years later, that's when he pulled out of his hat. At this point, he's still with the journeyman or the, the new journeyman, which was a typical 60s way to uh, push <laughs> yeah. into a band breaking up. Just get the new originals. Yeah, the, <laughs> that's my favorite. <laughs> the new originals. The new, originals. The new Yardbirds um, was what, you know? They, he was still with the journeyman at this point. Okay. Yeah, they were still still going well. Okay, so... I'm trying to remember how, so he gets Michelle involved in all of this and then Denny joins up. How did, right. how did they meet up again? Cause they knew each other before he joined the yeah. journeyman, new journeyman. They met on the Hootenanny tour. So Hootenanny was like a, kind of like an American bandstand for, for folk music. Okay. It was a, it was a television show. 
uh, you know, where all folk groups would come on because, you know, typical, you know, television, Hollywood, New York, they're going to capitalize on this, this thing. Right. So they would, and they would go on college campuses. So they would, you know, like American bandstand, American Dick Clark would have these caravan of stars where he would assemble these touring packages and they would go on tour and they would sing at a hall or, you know, an auditorium somewhere. And each group would get 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then there would be a headliner. So there was a thing called the Hootenanny tour and the, uh, John's group, the journeyman and Denny's group, the Halifax three were on one leg together. And, um, that's how John and Denny met. They were instantly attracted to each other. They both smoked marijuana. So that was a, uh, something they had in common, which I don't think, uh, John and Scott, uh, their friendship started to deteriorate during this time in the journeyman. So they weren't very close. And then Dick was straight as an arrow. He didn't, he didn't do drugs. So, so John and Denny were just like completely, they would sneak off on when the bus was stopped and go smoke a joint, you know, out and behind the bushes somewhere. <laughs> and they just formed a very tight friendship. And so when the journeyman, you know, in the early to mid 64, when the journeyman collapsed, uh, you know, the record label just, kind of ran out of faith in them, didn't renew their contract, had no recording sessions scheduled. So that was the end of the group. And everyone was getting tired of each other. John and Scott weren't even talking at this point. So John, you know, John wanted to keep the folk thing going, but the Beatles had come, you know, in February 64, the Beatles come to America and they just light it on fire. So everybody, uh, you can imagine like David Crosby, Jim McGuinn, Stephen Stills, Peter Torque, all these people who are playing in Greenwich Village, they're just like, I'm done with this, man. I want right. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and Cass and Denny were like that too. They're like, you know, we want we want to do rock and roll. Yeah. John was like, no, I'm sticking with folk, man. I like folk. There's a future for me in folk music. And uh, I just don't I don't see what's so great about the Beatles, you know. So yeah. you know, so so he uh he he wanted to keep it going, but man, like the pickings were really starting to get slim. So he reformed them with Michelle, I think because Michelle had had an affair already, like a year into their marriage. Right. And so I think he wanted to kind of keep an eye on her. So he brought her in because she couldn't sing. She's, uh, I mean, she she's a sing, model. Like John can make her sound good. Like anything that she sang that John produced, she sounds good. Yeah. Anything that she sang that John didn't produce, you know, it's not, not as good. And then not, not to denigrate her, you know, she's a, a wonderful talent, but she kind of needed John to, to really get the best out of her. Right. So he, he had, plus she looked really good and he really wanted a, a kind of a Peter, Paul and Mary thing going because Peter, Paul and Mary, even through the Beatles, they were still, you know, they were still first top rate. They first class, they, yeah. they were having hits still. Exactly. So yeah. they brought in this other guy named Marshall Brickman, who was, uh, he was in a group. I forget the name of the group. It escapes me right now, but they were kind of like a longstanding Greenwich village folk group that always had like rotating members coming in and out. I want to say the Trineers, but I think that was a rhythm and blues group. Some, but I think they were the Tarriers. So um, he was in that group. He played, he was a good banjoist. He had recorded a couple albums with like Eric Weisberg, you know? And oh, yeah, um, I remember that. I remember that in the yeah. book. Yeah. So, uh, so they brought him in, but he, like he was, he wasn't a great singer either. 
like he and John were passable. So they tried it out. And it's just like at the end of the night, they would, they did, they, they still had some journeyman dates to fill with the new journeyman. And, uh, you know, so, uh, but they were like exhausted and they just like, they had like no voice left. They're like, we can't keep doing this. We need, we need to get somebody who can uh, sing, be a tenor. So we don't have to do this. So the first person to come to mind was Denny. You know, and Denny had left the folk music scene. He was was in. He and Cass formed a group called the Mugwumps. Right. But the problem was, like, you know, in the in the myopic thinking of record executives, are like, oh, you're not British. We're not going to give you a record deal. You know, right. that's just the way it was for like anybody for like a year after the Beatles came. You and know? it still happens like, to this day. <laughs> so, right, it does. It, it it happens all the time. You know, you know, it's like you know, like San Francisco was like, if you're not from San Francisco, we're we're not going to. That's only a few years later. Nineties. If you're not from Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they named themselves the Mugwumps, which was a very British sounding name. And they managed to get a record deal. I, I liken them in the book to like Doolittle's Raiders. For anybody who doesn't know, the Doolittle was like the first strike the American forces did after Pearl Harbor. And what they did is they they got a bunch of B-25 bombers and stuck them on an aircraft carrier. And it really didn't do anything. I mean, they bombed Tokyo. You know, it caused a little bit, you know, people died, of course, which is tragic, but um, it caused a little bit of, you know, strife, but it was just done. It was kind of like, hey, just to show that we're doing something, we're yeah. getting started, we're getting into this. And I, that's kind of like what the the Mugwumps were. They were really one of the first groups to put electrified folk music out there. And the, their stuff is actually really good. They they re, they recorded like ten total tracks, maybe eight or ten tracks, and they released one single. It went nowhere, and Warner Brothers dropped them. And they recorded enough for an album, and it was re, which was released later when the Mamas and the Papas were huge, because of course Denny and Cass were in that. And there also was John Sebastian and Sally Janowski, who are in the Loving Spoonful. Right. You know Jim Hendrix. Everybody's been talking. But that had all fizzled out and Denny was like back to square one and living in Greenwich Village, like eking out a living, struggling to pay rent. And John comes like, hey, we need a singer. Can you do it? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. You know, he needs he needed the money. Yeah. So even though it was going back to folk and not rock. Yeah, it was it was like in his mind, it was a step backward. You know, like, oh, here I go. I got to do this again. <laughs> but, I, you know, I need the money. So, you know, so he and, and it's funny because by this time, John and Michelle, you know, you could tell things were getting tight for John and Michelle. And I didn't know this until I actually went there. They left Greenwich Village, which even at the time was kind of posh. Right. It was it had always been a kind of a hotbed of nonconformity in an artist community. Yeah. But it was it's, it's it. By the 60s, it was, you know, it had become such a big thing in the early 60s, like a big tourist destination that rents started getting high. Okay. So John and Michelle moved to the East Village, which I mean, when I walked down to where they had lived, you could just tell it was like a complete change. It's like you left this thriving little artistic community. Now you're getting more into the gritty part of New York City. Right. Uh, I mean, they, they lived across the street from a housing project, you know, so... Okay. 
And so he was, I was like, wow, this is, uh, you know, I guess I can see why I, it makes a little more sense why they were here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, so he went down there and, uh, you know, started rehearsing with them. He had like three days to memorize, to memorize like 50 songs, you know, which he did, Jeez. you know, and then go back out on tour, tour with them. And then that just kind of fizzled out. And then they were all left just kind of hanging, holding the bag here. Like, well, where do we go from here? You know? So, and I did notice that the Mugwumps do hold the illustrious honor of being the last band to play at the Peppermint Lounge. They did. Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were, they closed like, the, they, yeah, in fact, I think they were scheduled for like multiple nights and they played one and then they went back to the, the club and the doors were locked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's one way to do it. So yeah, they closed down the Peppermint Lounge. <laughs> crazy. So after all this fizzles out, they end up meeting Cass, but she didn't join the group immediately. I mean, they they met her under like a, a haze of LSD and Red Devil Ham, and then <laughs> and then the three of them, John, Denny, and Michelle, ended up going to the the Caribbean right with without Cass. But I think they they ran into her down there. Well, what, see, Denny and Cass knew each other. They had their band. She was in a group called The Big Three with uh, Tim Tim Rose and uh, Jim Hendrix. And so they were on, on Hootenanny tour packages, too. So uh, Denny and Cass, their groups were linked, were on the same same package. And you know, she just fell in love with him. You know, he was a, he was a handsome guy, kind of had a, well, she didn't know it at the time, but it kind of had a John Lennon look going. And she was, you know, in love with John Lennon when, when she first noticed him. But, you know, she loved him, loved his personality. Uh, it was unrequited love because Denny didn't love her back. She was, you know, overweight and um, and he held that against her, I guess, yeah. in, in, in his mind. And she's also so, she's a big person. I mean, maybe that's the wrong choice of words. She was a personality. I mean, she had a presence. Oh, she, she, I think, yeah, I mean, she has such a vivacious and uh, effervescent personality, yeah. you know, and it was, I think, you know, just from her weight, you know, she used that as to compensate, I think. Yeah. And she developed this really great and this really great uh, personality. And she, you know, between numbers, you know, when the, her bandmates were tuning their instruments, you know, retuning their instruments, she would riff, she would talk like, you know, kind of like Peter Gabriel, or, yeah. you know, in Genesis, he would tell these long stories, these long, dirty stories, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, hers, she would tell stories and they weren't super long, but they weren't dirty either. Right. But, you know, um, so yeah, so they met that way and yeah. John had like stashed a whole bunch of money. You know, like he'd been, he stowed like, I don't know, like maybe 15 grand away, I think, Wow, you know, from, from their touring. And then he also had a ITA credit card, American express card. So they're like, you know, kind of like he did when he went to Cuba, he's like, let's, you know, he, this was a thing John did. And he, he does it throughout the book. Like he likes to go to tropical destinations to just kind of think, okay. right. Like, like to, to just reset, to figure out where we go from here. So they decided to go to the to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and at first it was just him, Michelle, and Denny, and they went for like a week. And like we love it here, let's come back and stay like a year or like half a half a year or something. It was just take all that money. We'll we'll bring people, and so they they did that. But they you know they couldn't afford to stay in like in the hotels there or anything. So they they found this campground in St. John, neighboring island, and. Um, so they lived there on the beach for like several months, you know, and just, just kind of, just got, just kind of got closer. And, you know, Michelle and Denny started to develop a, a relationship that got a little too close. Yeah. 
That's that's <laughs> yeah, that was my understanding too. It, and then Cass ended up down there. She did. She had left to try to go. Uh, she, you know, her first love was like nightclub music, you know, or like, or the, the Broadway, you know, she loved singing Broadway songs. Even when she was a kid, she, she liked Elvis and all those, uh, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis and little Richard and all that stuff that was playing on the radio. But she, her first love was Broadway. She loved Broadway tunes. Okay. And so she, so she wanted to, you know, she tried out to, to play the role of Miss Marmelstein in, um, I can get it for you wholesale, which was Barbara Streisand's breakout role. Right. She lost to Barbara. She lost, she got pretty far in the audition process and she lost out to Barbara Streisand. It's not a bad person to lose out to, yeah. when, you know, trying to, yeah. you know, but uh, so she went back down to a place called the shadows, which eventually became uh, the cellar door uh, oh, okay. in, in Washington, DC. Yeah, yeah. She played there and the club owner, Bob Cavallo became her manager and he tried to really get her going in New York. And that just didn't work. It, she had this, I forget what the name of the club was, but she, she debuted at a club and it went awful. Oh. And, um, she just, she, uh, went back to DC, got a line that Denny was in the U S Virgin islands and wanted to hook up with him. She had befriended a guy named Billy Throckmorton who happened to be John's cousin or nephew. Yeah. Nephew. Okay. Uh, and it was his, his oldest, older sister's son. Cause John and Cass both grew up in the same area, Alexandria, DC area. Right. So, so she, to, she, and he was like a club regular. So she and Billy went to the U S Virgin Islands to, to, to hook up with all, with the rest of the group there. Okay. So while they're out, you know, so while they're out there on the beach one day, they see these two figures coming, you know, sort of a little overweight one and a tall skinny <laughs> one. Cause Billy, Billy was tall too, you know, and they see it coming and they're like, Oh, that's Cass. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, and it's like a big reunion on the beach, you know, and everybody was excited except for John. Cause John wasn't a big fan of Cass. Didn't yeah. Like him very much. I get that. He didn't, he wasn't real thrilled about her joining the, the group. Did not want her in his mind. He had, he wanted Peter, Paul and Mary. Yeah. And not Peter, Paul, Mary and Jane, you know, <laughs> you see, he wanted, he wanted to do that. And even though Cass could blow the doors off the club, you know, with her voice and proved it, you know, he's just, he, it was in his mind. It's like, nah. And he would come up with like stupid excuses. Eh, she's you know, of course her weight. He would, she would tell in private. He wouldn't like really say, Hey, you're too, you're Over. too fat. You know, he wouldn't yell. Yeah. You're too overweight. He, he would say things like she smells or her eyes are too close together. You know, yeah, she's just, she's just not too, she's just not right. You know? And like Denny and, and Michelle and Michelle's sister, Rusty was there and they're like, John, come on. Yeah. You know, he, she, she's great. She adds so much to your songs. Yeah. I'm going to, I have to start using that excuse here. Man, I, I don't know. I don't like that guy's <laughs> eyes are too close together. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> that's a, and I look at Cass. I'm like, her eyes aren't really close together. What is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So the band makes, they, you know, they, they've made their mark in, rock and roll history, music history. There's written some enduring classics. Right. And you mentioned early on here that they just kind of slowly fizzled. It was, there was never a clear stopping point. And to me, what is so interesting is that it's, it's one of those cases where the sum is greater than the parts. Right. Because, None of them came anywhere near the success they had after the Mamas and the Papas. You know, Cass died shortly after. And yeah. John, Denny, and Michelle all lived much 
much longer than the yeah, Chiefs, and they never they never came close to reaching those heights again. Yeah, well, Cass was kind of on her way. Like her music career really never reached the heights I think she had anticipated, and and the people at the record labels had anticipated. But she was becoming like a talk show superstar, right? Like, oh, really? She she would go on. She I think she even filled in for Johnny. Carson a couple times. Wow. Right. And she would go on Mike Douglas all the time. She would go on I think John Davidson had a had a talk show back then too. I think she was on with him. Wow. She, she, they're all over the place. She she was even given her own uh like a a variety show pilot, right? Which didn't go anywhere, but you know, she had like Mary Travers on it. And so yes, yeah, she was becoming like I, I think had she lived, she probably would have like had her own talk show at some point. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and it supplemented, which would supplement her singing career, you know, and it's funny because she w- she was very instrumental in putting Crosby, Stills, Nash to get Crosby, Stills and Nash together. She didn't put young in there, but she hung out with David Crosby all the time. She hung out with Graham Nash and Stephen Stills, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, you know, there's pictures of her with like jo- hanging out with Joni, but her music sounded like bubblegum like 1910 fruit gum company right. stuff. It's like, you know, for somebody who's hanging out with all these innovators, you, you know, your music is, I mean, it's, it's nice. You have a nice voice, but like it's getting better. It doesn't exactly, you know, stand up there with, you know, with <laughs> ladies of the Canyon, you know, right. like <laughs> so. Judy Collins is cranking out, yeah. you know. So, so I think I think she was kind of mismanaged. Uh, and again, I think John brought the best out in her. You know, he was such you know, one of the greatest. He was a great producer. I won't say he was one of the greatest, but he was a really he was a great producer. He had so much. He could have been one of the greatest. But when he, you know, he when he got his hooks into you, he made you great, which is. Why, you know, when she went to Las Vegas and had this this show that was just, it was just a disaster, you know, yeah. like cause she didn't prep for it or anything and oh. she didn't have a really good music manager and they brought, they did, they did, they brought in John to try to help her, oh, you know, wow. and it just didn't happen. So he really, he really did had a way of getting the best out of his, his singers. Well, I don't want to give everything away in the, out of this book. Cause I will actually, I actually want people to read it and not just listen to us <laughs> discussing everything about it. But is there a favorite story that you learned doing the research and talking to people that is maybe like a, a super well-known story or maybe uh, something behind a song that you didn't realize that really struck, struck a chord with you? You know, this, there's a lot of stories that like, really how the Monterey pop festival came together is really fascinating. You know, it was, you know, John is credited as, you know, it's his idea, but it it really became his thing. Like he took the, he was presented with the idea and much like he did with a song, he made it better. Right. You know, just the story of California dream and, and just the many iterations of it, not only how him writing it, 
but how it came to be the song we know today, like, you know, going into the studio, they originally going to cut it on Barry Maguire and they did cut it. And Barry Maguire sang the, the very first version of it. Oh, wow. With the mamas and the papas singing background. But like when John, like he, it was the first time he heard those four on tape. Like they, they go into the, the studio to sing it and then they come in and Lou Adler, Lou Adler's very hands-on producer he's very friendly with his artists the ones that he really liked and he really <laughs> liked barry and he really liked john so they bring john in, and it, that was john's song they like john was like they did a session or a few sessions where we're, we're just going to focus on john phillips songs right and you're going to record a bunch of them and he did and they ended up on an album called this precious time and so he hears california dream and played back with his group singing for the very first time in the background and he's like whoa we sound really good. I can't, I can't give this song to him. <laughs> like this is, uh, this is our song. Yeah. So, you know, he's like, he's kind of stuck in a hard place. He doesn't know what to do. I mean, he just signed with Dunhill and this is like before the, like, I think maybe they had one recording session and this is like their big, this is like their big moment here. And it's like, they're trying to get Barry back on the charts. Cause he did Eve of destruction, which was a big hit, but like it, the song pissed a lot of people off and right. like he was kind of a marked man like whatever you release it we're not it's not going to be a hit Oof. so but they they bring in john phillips and they got these great songs you know and so john uh you know he meets up with barry and barry's like really kind of laid back kind of guy you know he's he's really intense but you know he's kind of he's kind of like the quintessential hippie you know okay. stoner hippie at the time <laughs> and he's just like he you know john's like you know barry i just think you know, can we have that song? I think we, I think we would do it better, you know? And Barry's like, yeah, sure, man, you wrote it. You know, you oh. take it. So wow. well, Barry does, Barry does have the first recorded version. It didn't come out until his album, which I think came out after the mamas and the papas. And it's funny. Cause when you, if you put on a, a, a pair of headphones and listen to California dreaming, you know, that opening with the guitar, and then when you hear all the, you'll hear Barry's voice. Cause they didn't roll the tape back far enough. You'll hear like a split second of Barry going all the, you know, in his voice. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> I've never yeah, noticed you, yeah, you put on a pair of headphones and you'll hear it. So, and then also the, the way they developed, uh, you know, bringing in uh, PF Sloan to, uh, you know, he was just kind of like a wonder kid, you know, uh, in the studio. And uh, he really developed that guitar intro, you know, uh, oh, okay. he, he, he was a great songwriter himself and he knew that like, and, and when you think about it, you listen to any pop hit really from the fifties through the nineties, I'm sure it's still the same today, but I can't really speak on it about chart performance. Most great songs have a really great introduction, like something that really draws you like think of born in the USA, right? Like da, 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 da. it's just something that draws you in, you know, right. and uh, like journey a separate way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, 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 yeah. and Phil Sloan, he knew we have to have that. If we want to draw people to make this a big hit, yeah. every, every group had it back then, you know? And uh, so like think of Mr. Tambourine, man, that great introduction on, on McGuinn's Rickenbacker, you know? And uh, so they wanted to do something like that. And, and they developed that, that uh, great, I can't, I can't tell you off the top of my head what notes they were playing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember, I remember talking to you about it when I was researching you, uh, you actually, cause I, I found Phil a video of PF Sloan playing the original version yeah, because you know he'll 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 map out what we did. This is why it sounds like. It. But I wanted to hear what the keys were 
what it sounded like and what the notes were in the uh, in the the original arrangement of it and why it feels like we got to change this. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, uh, I sent that to uh, my buddy Jordan from Blinker the Star. He was able to yeah, decipher he, he, that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, that was that was good. I was able to. Uh, you know, I'm only going by what P.F. Sloan's saying that that's the, what the original. It might have been a little bit different, but it's probably pretty close to the way he played it. Yeah, I'm sure. In I'm that sure. video. Well, it's a fascinating read, and I love that you know you, you bring it's. I was expecting, based on our conversations prior to this, a more John Phillips focused book, but you do an, an excellent job of of bringing all four members together, and I I love right. how you did it, and I'm just I'm fascinated by this whole story now. It's it's really one of those things that I was like, okay. And I know a little bit about the story of John Phillips. I didn't, I had no idea how insane his life was before meeting yeah. Michelle. <laughs> and yeah, then, right. Because yeah. all you, you hear a lot about the infidelities, the marriages, the divorces, the, the, the drugs, the, drugs, the, all the scandal post mamas and papas, you know, it's right. But, you know, it, the book, goes beyond all that and it really lays out a, a really fascinating story so i would well, appreciate it i really am blown away by how good i mean you know i always think your family and i always support what you do but you know even if i didn't know you this is still a book that i'd recommend not just to for, you know, fans of mamas and papas, the papa heads or whatever we've decided to call them. <laughs> papa heads. But, but, you know, if you like that, that era of music and it, it's just, it's a really cool story. And I, and I, I wish you all the, the best with it. I know you've got uh, some other things in the works here, but what is the best way for people to find the book, purchase it, follow you and, and what you're working on beyond All the Leaves Are Brown? Well, you can go to my website, scottshayauthor.com, and that's S-H-E-A is the way you spell Shay. It's all one word, scottshayauthor.com. That'll give you all the links to where you can buy it. Uh, you can always go to Amazon, type in all the Leaser Brown, my last name, or all the Leaser Brown book, and that'll take you to it, or anywhere where fine books are sold, for that matter. And, uh, you know, my website will also link you to all my socials, where, I, you know, I post uh, things that I find interesting, mostly music-centered, uh, music or, you know, uh, pop vintage pop culture-centered not really today's pop culture, but yeah. you know, I'll leave that to my daughter. Yeah. Know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, no, and I appreciate, it. I also think anybody like what I tried to do with this book too, is uh, put you into the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, and the early 1970s. I try to let you know what's going on in the, in the scene at the time when all this is happening, uh, let you know what all the movers and shakers are doing and, uh, uh how the mamas and the hoppas uh, fit into all that. Well, you do a great job of setting that all up. You do feel like you're you're right there. So, you know, congratulations. And uh, I, I hope this brings you a whole lot of success and gets you on to your next project. Thank you. I hope so, too. So. <laughs>
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.